Today's the last day of the year. Is anybody excited about that? You ready to get the year over with? Or maybe uh, you ain't ready to start the new year. But wherever you're at, it don't matter. Um, but in thinking about just, uh, I know everybody's kind of thought, probably been in holiday mode or had a few days off work. Or, uh, you, you haven't, how many of you have had a regular schedule the past week? Nobody, right? Uh, the nativity scene was still up here when I got here because I just didn't, I don't think about it. It ain't something that normally, you know, it ain't something that's normally up here. So I just figured everything was up here and got here and the things out and didn't even walk over here Friday uh, when I was here. But uh, not normal, right, is the point. Uh, because what we're doing, we're celebrating, right? We're celebrating Jesus' birth. And so a lot of times over this past week, I've heard people say, what do you give Jesus for his birthday? Or not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, Bobby preached about, in Corinthians, where Paul talks about running a race, and you start to look back on this year, because we're at the end of it, and how'd you do? Did you do good? Did you not do good? Well, if you did or didn't, what do you got to do? You got to change something, right? And what's tomorrow? New Year, right? And so what do we do? We make resolutions. We think, let me figure out what I can change. There's nothing wrong with evaluating your life or, or looking back or reflecting and noticing a pattern of something good or bad, but uh, change isn't necessarily where you need to start. And so... And just thinking about what all went on the past two weeks, um, it just made me ask a question. Well, what does God really want? Which is titled the message today. And um, on the radio about two weeks ago, I heard a woman uh, reading Psalm 51. And the answer to that question is in Psalm 51. And I uh, just couldn't couldn't get over it. Couldn't quit thinking about it. And so... Prayed about it, prayed about it, prayed about it, and uh, I took it as in God saying, this, this is what I want you to talk about today. So, before we do, I want to pray, alright? Dear Lord, thank you for just an opportunity to gather, dear Lord, to worship. Uh, thank you for everybody that's, that's gathered here today, and uh, everybody's listening. Uh, I just pray that you go before me, dear Lord, that... Uh, that you just speak through me, dear Lord. They're your words, not mine. And that uh, we will just worship you, dear Lord. We would lay down anything we brought in here with us. And uh, just be present with you. Uh, right here and right now. And I just thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so Psalm 51. Well, if you don't have a Bible, you can look at it on the screen, but if you do got a Bible or a phone or whatever you use to read, when you turn to Psalm 51, it says, kind of in the subtext at the, at the top there, it says, for the choir director, a Psalm of David. So it tells you who writes it. Regarding the time Nathan, the prophet, came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well, I read that and I was like, I know that story. That, you know, that's kind of a story that's taught in Sunday school or in church all my life, you know. 
Um, but I still didn't remember the whole story. So you got to go, but you kind of need to know why David's writing this before you read it. So I'm going to summarize the story for you. But that story of, of David and Bathsheba is in um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And to make a longer story short, uh, if you didn't know, King David was king of Israel. Uh, they had, David was a warrior. They had conquered nations in the promised land, setting up the promised land, uh, kind of establishing the kingdom. And uh, King David is always, King David is also known as a man after God's own heart. But uh, something I noticed in the very first verse of Second Samuel chapter 11, and thinking about what does God, what does God really want? In the Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, it says, The following spring, the time of year when kings go to war, David sent Joab, the Israelite, and the Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites. And in the process, they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And David was kind of like a colonel as well as king. And, you know, he's a warrior. Uh, so I noticed right there in the first verse, there's a problem. David stayed home. Well, guess what happens? Just like this past week, you had a couple of days off work. You home, ain't got nothing to do. Idle time, devil's playground, right? So it says David wakes up from a nap. Y'all take any naps this past week? Y'all ain't had nothing to do? Some of you had a whole week off. And uh, David got out of his bed after taking a nap, walked up on the roof overlooking the city and his big palace. And, uh, well, they didn't have, a, they didn't have a temple yet. I don't really know what it was. Uh, and he notices Bathsheba on the rooftop naked. And uh, he sends one of his servants to go get her. Brings her back, sleeps with her. Well, guess what? Bathsheba sends word back, she ended up, she's pregnant. What does David do? What do you do when you get in trouble? Or what do you do when something's broke? Or when you make a mistake? What do you try to do? Try to fix it, right? How can I fix this? So David then tries to figure out a way to fix it. So Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. He's a soldier in the army. Uh, he's like, well, maybe if I call Uriah home, and give him a break from the war, and give him a present, and send him home. He'll sleep with his wife because he's been away at war, and that'll take care of my problem. Well, Uriah, being a good, faithful soldier, he is. He's like, I can't. My men are out there. It wouldn't be right for me to indulge in all these pleasures and and things while my men are out there suffering, and I wouldn't be a good leader to do it. So he sleeps outside the city gate. So David's like, well, how can I fix this? I know what I'll do. I'll get you right drunk, and then maybe he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Well, he doesn't. So then David's like, well, now I'm really going to be in trouble because days have gone by, 
still got the same problem. So what does he do? He sends Joab. He sends Uriah back out to battle, but he sends him with a letter to Joab. And Joab reads the letter. The letter says, let Uriah lead in the battle today. And when you get close to the enemy's gates, draw back. Because you know, when you get to a city, or if you ever watched any kind of night movie or, or older colonnade type of thing, when you get to a town, city, gate, every, there's people on top, right? And whoever's got the higher ground is going to win. Well, they get to the city gate because they've pushed their men back and, you know, being the good soldiers that they are. Anyway, your rider gets killed. And what happens after that is Joab sends word back to David. You know, I did what you said to do. Your eyes dead. He was like, well, that'll take care of the problem. But after you, man, got a husband no more, so I'll be your husband. Right? And then, what happens right after that? And, you know, Joab, Joab got kind of, was the middleman, got caught in the middle of all this. And right at the end of chapter 11, <coughs> David says, you know, well, tell Joab, don't be discouraged. The sword kills one as well as another. Just fight harder next time, you know. Things like this happen. Don't worry about it. So Bathsheba heard what had happened. She mourned, grieved. After that time of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. She became one of his wives. She gave birth to a son. And the last sentence in that chapter says, but the Lord was very displeased with what David had done. Okay? Thankfully, thank God, David has a friend and a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. And Nathan rebukes David. Does everybody know what a rebuke is? Somebody tell me. You don't use that word every day, do you? You're just setting somebody straight, putting them back on the path, right? Telling somebody. So Nathan says to David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, he says, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. So David's done what he's done. Nathan has the wisdom to kind of set David up to get his mind back right. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but a little lamb he had worked hard to buy. He raised the little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing a lamb from his own flock for food, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and served it to his guest. David was furious. Surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs for the poor man and one and for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan says to David, guess what? You're that man. 
The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you his house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then did you despise the word of the Lord and have done this horrible deed? You have murdered Uriah and stolen his wife. From this time on, the sword will be a constant threat to your family because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Because of what you have done, the Lord will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man. He will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will do this to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Can you imagine being Nathan having to go tell your buddy that? It takes more love to rebuke somebody than it does to just go along with whatever they do. So, everybody got the story, right? Everybody got it fresh in their mind. Right around this time is when David writes Psalm 51. And thinking about what does God really want? I thought about how, how would you respond to that if somebody told you that? Somebody put you in your place. And you think, you're David now. You're, you're the David that fe- defeated Goliath. You're the David that has conquered all these people. You're the David that can have any woman he wants, anything he wants. Leader of a nation. He fell into sin. You think David just... I don't think David had the forethought to just say, hey, you know what? I'll go up on the rooftop and let's see if I can find somebody, a naked woman. You know, I don't think he had this premonition to, to go and do that. But what he didn't do was go to battle like he should have and stay at home and be lazy and take naps and kind of sin is kind of a one step at a time deal, right? He kind of fell into it. I just happened to see her, you know. He could have said to God, well, you know, I'm a man. And I got male hormones and Lord, you're the one that made her so pretty. I mean, I can't. What do you you want me to do? I mean, come on. The girl had a body like a back road and I couldn't. I mean, I just couldn't help myself, you know. I've just seen the most beautiful woman in the world. Should I have turned and ran like Joseph? If any of you remember the story of Joseph, you know, uh, Pharaoh's wife tries to seduce him. What does he do? He turns and runs so hard she ripped his coat off and used it against him. And to that, God would say, yes, that's exactly what I expected you to do, to flee from sin. But you didn't, David. You let your heart burn with lust. And by continuing to pursue it, you poured gas on it. You embraced your sin. You nurtured it. You kept at it. 
Who's that sound like? Because you can read this story and say, oh, well, that was back then, and I wouldn't have done that. I would have done what I was supposed to do. Or you can justify it like David by saying, I don't do that. I don't sleep with other women. Or, But I bet you, everybody in this room, including myself, you got some sort of struggle or sin at some point, and you justify it by classifying it and saying, this one's worse than that one, and and I feel better about myself because I don't do that and they do that and I'm better than them. But guess what? We, we're that man or woman who has the same guilt and same behavior because it's our nature because we're fallen people, right? And I'm sorry. I know it's the last day of the year and y'all probably got plans this evening, right? You're like, Lord, I'll get right tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new year, new me, new deal, you know. But, you know, I think David played that game every step of the way. He just had to justify his sin. He had to, he allowed his heart to become hard. Just like calluses on your hands. What, how do you get calluses on your hands? By working, right? But by doing the same, but before you get calluses on there, you get blisters, right? And then blisters are to tell you to quit doing whatever you're doing. Right? Y'all ever, y'all break leaves or dug a ditch or something. And if you ain't got on no gloves, you get a blister. In 10 minutes of raking leaves, I'll get a blister right there. And that blister is to tell you, hey, you need to do something different. You need to change what you're doing. But if you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, you'll form a callus. To where you can't feel any pain. And your heart does the same thing. And you don't feel any conviction. You don't feel any... You, you get to where you can't feel anything. You, you sear your conscience. Your heart gets calloused by the repetition of sin. And the Bible talks plenty of times about hardening of heart. Your heart gets hard from overuse, from abuse from doing the wrong thing over and over and over and over again because you think in the moment this is going to satisfy me. This this is what makes me happy. And then you do it to get that instant gratification, that instant reward. And what happens? They don't last, right? And you've got to do it again and again and again and again. And then you've gotten so far, you don't even, you're lost. You don't even realize it. And so thankfully, David had Nathan to come and set him straight. You know, most people don't like that phrase, especially when somebody else is telling you. But if you don't have somebody to come and remind you of who God is and who you are, you're going to be hard-hearted. So, something I noted, do you got people in your lives to do that? Nobody likes to be held accountable. Not even myself. But if you don't have somebody that loves you that way, that loves you enough not to care about what you think about them, I bet you've got lost a time or two. Might be lost right now. 
So, knowing all this, 2 Samuel 12, kind of toward the end, halfway point of the chapter, but right after, after all this happens and Nathan says what he says to David, guess what happens? Instead of David saying all these things and trying to justify sin and respond the way he could have, Nathan being, or David being the, this great person he was in people's eyes, it says in verse 13, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. But you have given the enemies of the Lord great opportunity to despise and blaspheme Him. So your child will die. Well, guess what? There's consequences to doing dumb stuff. That don't mean that God don't love you and that He don't forgive you. But if you don't, if it don't cost you anything or there ain't a lesson to be learned, then are you going to put any weight or value on it? It doesn't mean God don't love you or that He doesn't forgive you. So, now that we know the story and we kind of know where David's at, Psalm 51. It's a song... You know, psalms or songs. But David writes this, this plea uh, somewhere along the lines of, of all this happening. I'm going to read it. And uh, there's a couple of things in here that, that I saw and, and have kind of learned just in studying it that, um, that encouraged me and convicted me and helped me to see, like, what does God really want? But it reads... Have mercy on me, O God. Because of Your unfailing love, because of Your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against You and You alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in Your sight. You will be proved right in what You say and Your judgment against me is just. First thing I notice in that is when you sin, when you make a mistake, when you've fallen, you gotta recognize. David says in verse three, I recognize my rebellion. I recognize my wrong. But guess what? Sometimes you gotta have help to see, to recognize. Because you how many of you do it on your own very well? And like I said, do you got people in your life that love you that much? Those are friends. I'm not talking about buddies that just have a common interest. Verse 5 says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Guess what David's doing now? He's recognized his sin, right? He's recognized where he's missed a mark. And now what is he doing? He's asking. In, uh, I believe the King James Version, when it's, in verse 7, when it says, Purify me of my sins, 
It says, purge me with hyssop. Anybody know what that means? I didn't either. I had to look it up. <coughs> purge me with hyssop. So, I get on my phone and look up. What's, what's the significance of hyssop in the Old Testament? A hyssop branch is what was used to sprinkle blood on the doorpost at Passover. A hyssop branch is what is used to sprinkle blood on the altar when they're giving sacrifices. In John 19, guess what? When Jesus is on the cross, right before He's about to breathe His last breath and say, it is finished, the guard gives him sour wine on a hyssop branch. You see what God did there? That little branch given to Jesus was signifying that Jesus was the purifying, the cleansing, the washing. That same thing that happened in the Old Testament. Over 2,000 years, God could take a branch, a twig, and make it mean that much. Only God can do stuff like that. And so if you're not reading your Bible and asking questions and being humble and saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what this means. Let me go look it up. You're going to miss all those treasures that are in there. Who knew God could use a, a twig to signify Jesus being the purifying? The removing of that stain of sin. So that's what David's saying. That hyssop was used as a purifying thing in the Old Testament. So that's what David means when he says, purge me with hyssop. And for I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there, purify me of my sin. So he's recognized that he sinned and he's asking God, but what, it, what else is he doing? He's repenting, right? We talk about, how many of you know what the word repent means? I don't use it very much. Because it hurts, right? We don't talk about repentance a whole terrible lot. We mention it, but I wanted to explain it a little bit. So repent just means to turn from, right? Sin's over here. Jesus is over here, pure, holy, undefiled, unstained, right? And what do we do? Bobby's taught this, showed you this before. If this is the line for sin, we try to see just how close we can get to it and still be okay, right? Instead of turning from it, and looking at the only one that can save us, that can purify us, that can wash us, that can cleanse us. You turn from or turn back to God. What repent means. So David is repenting. Change my mind, God. Repentance is something that's at the center of the New Testament. And you don't like to talk about it because it makes you feel bad, don't it? John, the Baptist, the baptizer. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, before Jesus comes, He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
you constantly got to turn your back on sin. You constantly got to turn to God. It isn't sacrifices. It isn't offerings. It isn't attendance. It isn't something you can produce. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Luke chapter 17, He says, one day, Jesus said to the disciples, there will always be temptations to sin. What sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. It would be better to have thrown into the sea, to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. And if there is repentance, forgive. So what does that tell you we should be doing? as brothers and sisters in Christ who are supposed to be loving each other and representatives of Christ. We should be correcting each other, right? But we don't do that because everybody gets offended. And so we divide, subdivide all into our own little categories and boxes. And I'm going to stay over here because it's my safe space. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. I heard a, a guy a lot smarter than me, I believe his name's R.C. Sproul, say, true faith always involves repentance, and true repentance always involves faith. So we're getting to the answer of what does God really want. So in verse 8 he says, Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from Your presence and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and make me willing to obey You. He's asking. Wash me. Cleanse me. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Guess what happens when you've been washed and cleaned and forgiven? The more you have felt God's forgiveness, the more you're going to want to tell people about it. Which is part of the reason I'm even up here telling you about it, because I've just experienced and felt God's forgiveness so much, I've got to tell somebody. But the answer to the question, what does God really want, is in verse 16 and 17. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You don't want a bird offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. So what do you think God really wants? We, uh, Chrissy did a craft with kids at the house two weeks ago. What can you give Jesus for Christmas? And it was a heart. You put your name on it. You hung it on the tree. He wants your heart, right? But in order to do that, what do you have to do? You have to turn from yourself, from you, from sin, and turn back to God and give it to Him. 
which is a step of faith. A broken heart is the greatest gift you can give. And that's all God really wants. And if you quit trying to fix everything and just give it to Him, I'm telling you, some, some stuff will happen that will make you want to tell people about it. Give your heart back to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for just uh, having the mercy and grace to to let this Psalm 51, 16, and 17 just come across my path, dear Lord, just to remind me that to give my heart back to you over and over and over again, dear Lord, to turn from uh, my sinful, selfish nature, dear Lord, to, to have people in my life that are willing to love me enough to put me back in your presence, dear Lord, to set me straight. God, I pray that for all of us, dear Lord, whatever we're going through, whatever, whatever we need to lay down, whatever things are in your way, dear Lord, that we would just give them over to you and confess those things, dear Lord, and know that you don't convict us of sin to, to destroy us, dear Lord, but, but to heal us and to redeem us and to make us whole again. And uh, God, I just pray that in this time we would just respond to that in, in whatever way you ask us to. We love you. Amen.